Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we talk to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. Today I'll be speaking to Philip Goff. Philip's an assistant professor of philosophy at Durham University. His research focuses on how to integrate consciousness into our scientific worldview. Philip has recently published a new book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. Okay, hello Philip. Hello. Thanks for coming, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, can you first tell me a bit about what you're working on at the moment? At the moment I'm spending a lot of time promoting my new book, because you know, my first book that I published a couple of years ago was an academic book, and I didn't do any pub promotion at all. You just, <laughs> it just got published, and you, know, you wait to see if you get a review or two. But then my new book is a trade book aimed at a general audience. So I seem to have spent an incredible amount of time with the publishers organised doing podcasts and writing popular articles and uh, doing debates and things. So, so that's, that's taken up quite a lot of time. But been quite fun, actually, a bit different to the solitary academic life of sitting with a laptop. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, and can you tell me a bit about the, about the new book? Yep, it's called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. So I guess there's a, it's, it's a sort of negative bit and a positive bit. The, the negative bit is, is a particular account of the problem of consciousness and also tracing that back to the philosophical foundations of the scientific revolution. And I basically think it's, it's because of the way Galileo designed science that we, that we have a problem of consciousness at all. Mm-hmm. And then it, the positive bit is defending a particular solution to that problem, which is, which is a kind of panpsychist position. So I guess it's generally agreed that consciousness poses a serious challenge to contemporary science. You know, despite great progress on understanding the brain, you know, we still don't have even the beginnings of an explanation of how complicated electrochemical signaling is somehow able to give rise to this inner subjective world of colours and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us knows from our own experience. Um, but I guess it most, one common reaction is to say, okay, this is a real problem, but we just need to do a little bit more neuroscience, we just need to plug away at our standard ways of investigating the brain and we'll eventually crack it. But I, th- I think the problem's deeper than that. Um, so I- in my view, the core of the problem is that Physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, mm-hmm. whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative, quality-involving phenomenon. So just in the sense that it involves qualities, if you think about the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint, you, know, you can't capture these kind of qualities in a purely quantitative vocabulary. And so you know, as, as long as you're... Your, your description of the brain is, uh, is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you're always going to leave out these qualities and hence leave out consciousness itself, in a sense. So, so I think it's a kind of in-principle problem, really. Um, okay. okay, and can you tell us how, how does Galileo come into this? Yeah, so I kind of think Galileo is to blame. For <laughs> um, so, I mean, a key moment in the scientific revolution is Galileo's declaration that mathematics is to be the language of the new science. So the new science is to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. Um, But Galileo well understood 
that you can't capture consciousness in these terms. Consciousness is as, as an essentially qualitative phenomenon. You can't capture it in a purely quantitative language. So Galileo said, well, what we need to do is take consciousness out of the domain of science. Mm -hmm. Once we've done that, you know, we can capture everything else in mathematics. So Galileo kickstarts mathematical physics, you know, which has gone really well. But I think we've kind of forgotten that that was never intended as a complete description of reality. You know, the whole project was premised, explicitly premised, on taking consciousness out of the domain of science. So this is important, I think, because, as I say, many people appreciate there's a deep problem of consciousness, but think, oh, you know, we just need to do more neuroscience and we'll crack it. And every time there's a new scientist article on consciousness, this is the kind of line, mm -hmm. the problem, let's just do more neuroscience. But, and, you know, and I think people think this because, quite understandably, they look at the great success of physical science, explaining more and more of our universe, the incredible technology it's produced, and they think, um, well, this should give us confidence that it'll one day explain consciousness. But I think that's based on a sort of misunderstanding of the history of science. You know, I think the irony is physical science has done so well precisely because it was designed to exclude consciousness. You know, if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, you know, of course you can't do that. I, you know, I designed physical science to deal with the quantitative, not the qualitative. You know, and the fact that it's done very well with the quantitative doesn't give you any reason to think it's going to do well with this essentially qualitative phenomenon. Yeah, so that's the general line, trying to give a kind of historical narrative. I think, you know, I spend a lot of time on fiddly arguments, but I don't think the fiddly arguments ever really convinced everyone. It's, it's the big narrative, mm -hmm. you know, of the success of science, what that entails that persuades people. So that's the kind of line of the book, really. Okay, so what is your, your alternative account of, of consciousness and its place in the universe? So the approach I favour is rooted in some very important work from the 1920s by Bertrand Russell and Arthur Eddington, who was the first scientist to confirm general relativity, among other things. Um, so I'm inclined to think these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And it's a tragedy of history that it got forgotten about for so long for various historical reasons. But it's recently been rediscovered in academic philosophies, causing a lot, of, a lot of interest and excitement. And so part of my motivation for writing this book was to you know, try and get these ideas out to a broader audience. So, so the starting point of Russell and Eddington was that physical science doesn't really tell you what matter is, mm -hmm. right? That sounds like a kind of really bizarre claim at first. If you read a physics textbook, you seem to discover all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter. Uh, but what Russell and Eddington realized is that physical science, for all its richness, is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what it does. So you, know, you think about you know, physics tells us that matter has mass and charge, uh, and these properties are, are completely defined in terms of behavior, right? Charge is about attraction and repulsion. Mass is defined in terms of gravitational attraction and resistance to acceleration. This is all about behavior. Physics has absolutely nothing to say about what philosophers sometimes call the intrinsic nature of matter, you know, how matter is in itself independently of its behavior. So it turns out there's this huge hole in our scientific worldview, in our scientific picture of the world. Okay, so what's this got to do with consciousness? 
basically the proposal of Russell and Eddington is to put consciousness in that hole. Right? So right. we're looking right. for a place for consciousness in our scientific story. <clears throat> We've got this huge hole. Let's try and put consciousness in the hole. Mm -hmm. So the resulting view is a kind of panpsychism, which is the ancient view that consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous. But this is a kind of panpsychism stripped of any mystical or spiritual connotations. So that the view is there's just matter, you know, particles, fields, nothing spiritual or supernatural. But matter can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes it as it were, from the outside, tells us how it behaves. Um, but matter from the inside, as it were, that is to say, matter in terms of its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So it's a beautifully simple, elegant way of integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview. Um, and yeah, so we, we know consciousness exists. You know, Nothing is more evident than our feelings and experiences. We need to fit it in somehow. And this offers a really attractive way of doing it. Okay, so apart from this uh, more, more popular book, um, what are you working on more academically? So I just finished a paper that's for, coming, for a volume that's coming out with Oxford University Press on quantum mechanics and consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, I've just been exploring whether Reflective. I mean, quantum mechanics is, you know, one of, in terms of prediction, is one of our most successful scientific theories. You know, so much of modern technology is based on it. But trouble is, no one knows what the hell it's telling us about reality. You know, and there are all these different interpretations and no consensus on which is the correct one. So I was exploring whether attention to consciousness can help us make progress here. You know, I strongly believe, and this is really the core of what, what I believe philosophically, that Philosophers and scientists in the future will be shocked that philosophers and scientists in the 20th and early 21st centuries didn't think more about consciousness in terms of trying to work out what reality is like. You know, I think we've got something that we know pretty much for certain exists. You know, nothing is more evident than the reality of one's own feelings. But we spend hardly any time drawing out the ontological implications of that entity. Um, so, so what I was exploring is I was exploring wave function monism, which is one a, a lot of philosophers of physics think is the, is the most straightforward way of interpreting uh, the ontology of quantum mechanics. And according to this view, at a fundamental level, reality consists of this kind of very, very high dimensional possibility space. Uh, the number of dimensions are you take the number of particles in the universe, times it by three, <laughs> That's how many dimensions there are. So it's really yeah. weird. Uh, you know, and this is one way of understanding what the wave function is. It's this field in very high dimensions. So there are a lot of issues of, you know, if that's your story of fundamental reality, how do you get kind of tables and chairs uh -huh. <laughs> out of that? Uh, so I was talking about that a little bit. But, and one wave function monist, Alyssa Ney, uh, whose work's very interesting, you know, she, she says in one paper, well, maybe we, maybe what does wave function monists just say there aren't any tables and chairs? You know, they're, they're, the world we think of as existing doesn't really exist at all. And she points out that, you know, idealists in history have kind of thought something like this, the physical world doesn't exist, the physical world as we ordinarily take it to be. Um, and I suppose what I'm saying is, okay, well, 
suppose, even if that's the case, what you do have to account for is consciousness. We know that consciousness exists, so your wave function monism had better have the resources to account for the fact that people feel pain, <laughs> you know, that people experience color. Um, and the trouble is, if you can't get ordinary objects, it looks hard to see how you can account for consciousness. I mean, I'm not assuming any view of consciousness here, even if you, know, you have a materialist view. You know, most materialist views account for consciousness in terms of brains. <laughs> If you haven't got brains in your ontology, mm -hmm. you know, how do you... So, so I tentatively reject wave function monism or at least raise some challenges for it on this basis. So really I have this thing in general that I call the consciousness constraint, that any theory of reality that with aspirations to be complete needs to have the resources to account for the reality of consciousness. You know, I think as a scientific community, we still haven't taking that on board. I think you know, not many people are prepared to deny the reality of consciousness, but they don't think of it as, an, as a datum in its own right. You know, you think the job of science is to account for the data of observation experiments. If, you, you know, if you've got a theory that does that, job done. But I think, you know, if you've got a theory, even if you've got a theory that accounts for all the data of observation experiments, if it can't account for consciousness, your theory is false or at least incomplete. So, so that's really the, the most important thing for me, that, that we come to take consciousness as a datum in its own right over and above the data of um, observation experiments. And, um, and I think you know, maybe that might help us, once we explicitly adopt that constraint, might help us make progress in some of our deadlocks in, in, in our theories of reality. So what is the most controversial philosophical position you've ever held? Well, I mean, I guess I spend most of my time defending panpsychism, which is already pretty controversial. Although, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, I think it's gone from something that's was laughed at insofar as it was thought of at all to something that is, you know, taken quite seriously as a, as a, as a respected, albeit minority, position in, in analytic philosophy of mind. Um, uh, partly, I think, because of the rediscovery of this stuff by Russell and Eddington. Uh, I also, in the, so in the final chapter of my new book, is rather experimental, <laughs> you know, exploring various possibilities. Not really so much defending of views, but just exploring possibilities. As I say, this is a book aimed at a general audience. So I tentatively explore whether you could have a view where fundamental particles have a kind of libertarian free will. Uh, I call okay. this view pan-libertarianism. Um, and the reason I explore this is, so I get, I'm, a, I'm agnostic on free will. I, I, go, I don't know what I think about free will. But I think the most unattractive thing about the libertarian view for me, so some people think it's, it's refuted experimentally by the Libet experiments and, and related experiments. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about what those experiments really show. Uh, and there are also philosophical arguments that show it's incoherent that I'm, I'm skeptical of as well. I, wh what I think is most unattractive about the libertarian position where we, we have real strong free will is that on most accounts of it, uh, it's, it's something only had by human beings, something that sort of magically pops up when you, with, the, with the appearance of the emergence of human beings, and it's nowhere else in nature. So that leads to a quite inelegant, disunified picture of the world. So I think if, if you do believe in strong libertarian free will, it would be more attractive if you could think of it as something that's pr 
present, you know, at the fundamental level, present throughout nature and not just some magical thing that appears of human beings. So that's the view I try to make sense of. Um, so it's not, not, not a view I've, I actually necessarily believe, but I think it's an attractive view if you are a libertarian. Okay, which philosophical position have you changed your mind about? Yeah, I, th I think on consciousness I've actually had all the positions. So, uh, you know, when I was an undergraduate in the dying embers of the 20th century, we were taught that um, the only two options were materialism on the one hand, you know, roughly the view that you can explain consciousness in terms of the chemistry of the brain, and on the other hand, dualism, that consciousness is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I started off a materialist. I thought that was the scientifically respectable position, but I just came to to think it had such deep problems, partly to do with this the qualitative, quantitative stuff that I was talking about earlier. So, I, you know, I just felt I couldn't believe that view. So I guess after that I was a kind of closet dualist. <laughs> I sort of thought that was the only option, but I was kind of a bit embarrassed about it, thought it had such deep problems. I actually wrote my end of degree dissertation arguing that the problem of consciousness is irresolvable. And I le left academia, went on and did something else, and right. lived in Poland for a bit. Um, but then I came across panpsychism, which, you know, I hadn't been taught as an undergraduate, which seemed, you know, sounds kind of crazy, but just avoids the deep difficulties faced by these more conventional options. That was kind of a real sort of coming home in a way, sort of real, you know, ah, oh, it's finally a, a view of consciousness that seems to me to make intellectual sense. And um, also, I think on, um, on value, the metaphysics of value, when I was <clears throat> an undergraduate and an MA student, I guess I, I, I was attracted to the error theory that all moral claims are false, and that's because on the error theory there are no facts about good and bad and right and wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so this seemed to me to make sense, but I did my graduate study in Reading, and there was a lot of meta-ethics going on there. Um, I talked a lot to Philip Stratton Lake and Jonathan Dancy, and it wasn't really to do my PhD, but <laughs> uh, I just got talking to them, and I guess they persuaded me that if, you know, if you're going to be an error theorist about morality, you ought to be an error theorist about all value truths, you know, including, for example, tr value claims involved in evidence, you know, that you ought to believe what the evidence suggests. You know, so if you, you know, someone believes that climate change is caused by the moon because they read it in the tea leaves or something, you know, you think, you shouldn't believe that. You should respect the evidence. Uh, but, you know, that itself is a kind of value claim, right? That, you, you know, there's certain norms governing belief. Uh, and so it looks like, actually, you can't rationally believe the error theory because, or, or, you, because to, or you, can't, you can't take yourself to have reason to believe the error theory, put it that okay, way, yeah. because, because that itself is, is to commit to a, a value claim. So th th things like that and... and, and claims about more prudential norms and stuff. The, the, the real, if it was just about good and bad, you can maybe believe that that's, you know, that's an illusion. But realizing how pervasive value is in all kinds of claims, I guess, made me um, turn to a, you know, a quite strong form of uh, moral realism. And 
And that was like, you know, it did change my life in some way in the sense of I could go out and do do like do something good and think that was really good. That I mean, not no, no, not like very good. It was just yeah, that was objectively good, and that was yeah, that did so. So I do think I relate philosophy to you know how I'm actually living things. I don't think of it as a sort of just an abstract philosophical, abstract academic pursuit. And can you tell us uh, which work of fiction you've most recently read? Yeah, I do read a lot of fiction, and then. I always forget what I've read, um, but I did recently read Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, which is uh, about Korean immigrants living in Japan, and um, it's a kind of real epic, going over several generations of the first in Korea and then moving to Japan, and um, so yeah, that was really good. Um, I tend to read more non-fiction than fiction. I like reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, popular Economics, okay. Hajun Chang and Piketty, Piketty. Mm -hmm. and um, currently reading uh, Popular Science, currently reading Sean Carroll's new book, Something Deeply Hidden, which is um, defending the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. I really like Sean, I mean, Sean Carroll, he's, he's really clued up on philosophy, you know, you get some physicists who slag off philosophy not really knowing anything about it, but he's really, I mean, it's in his last book, the stuff on consciousness, you know, he's really put in effort to, he's defending a, a view I don't agree with, but really put in effort to, um, you know, work, get to grips with the arguments and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I always think I should read more fiction. I try to alternate fiction and fact, but I always end up reading more factual stuff, and then I can't get to sleep, so I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Um, and what is your favourite TV show? Um, yeah, I was all, watch a lot of t lot of TV series. Uh, just recently finished Years and Years. Mm -hmm. This kind of dystopian extension of current events, which I thought was really good. Really sort of raising worries about where we might be headed. Uh, and then I've just we're just on episode two of The Succession which is this billionaire for HBO, about this billionaire family who are, the kids are fighting over who's gonna take over their dad's business and all horrible people. Uh, <laughs> so that's good. I'm really looking forward to the new BBC dramatization of His Dark Materials, Philip Pullman's classic trilogy. So we've had, had some interaction with Philip Pullman. So I'm a huge fan of Philip Pullman's work, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize there was connection with my own work until we um, interacted on Twitter recently. He interjected into a, a Twitter discussion I was having on consciousness, and um, and then we emailed. And because there are uh, you know there are panpsychist themes to to the His Dark Materials trilogy. You know the, it focuses around this mysterious substance, dust with a capital D. That's got, that, that turns out to be a kind of fundamental particle associated with consciousness. Um, and then after our interaction, I, so I, I look back at uh, the His Dark Material novels, and I discovered a line that actually perfectly captures the view I defend, this Russell Eddington okay. view I was talking about. So, so I'll, I'll paraphrase. So, so it's, it's um, the character Mary, who's a scientist, is having a conversation with some dust. <laughs> Right. Which is, I won't go into how she's doing that. It's some elaborate setup. They're not sort of speaking. And she says, 
are you what we have called spirit? And the answer is something like, uh, in nature we are spirit, uh, in, in what we do we are matter. Spirit and matter mm -hmm. are one. And that kind of is pretty much the position. <laughs> so that was, so anyway, so, so last week we, Philip Pullman and I, arranged to have a public discussion of panpsychism and the philosophy of consciousness in um, Blackwell's bookshop in Oxford. And, and that was a really, really, really interesting event. And, and as it was filmed, there's going to be a video on Penguin website early November when the book comes out. So, um, yeah, uh, it's really interesting to make those connections. So if, you know, philosophers don't reach out enough, you know, we're just sort of talking to ourselves. So it's great to sort of make that connection with uh, a different area of cultural life. And which album or artist did you listen to obsessively as a teenager? Oh, God. Uh, I was a, hu a huge Smiths fan, huge Morrissey fan as a kid. Uh, well, it's very sad that Morrissey's become a bit of a twerp these days, or breaks my heart. Um, I remember my, one of my earliest memories is hearing my sister listening to Shoplifters of the World, mm -hmm. Unite and Take Over. I was just really curious as to what that meant. I think I asked my sister and she said, oh, he's just... He's just strange. <laughs> but uh, no, it's like PJ Harvey, the big PJ Harvey poster. Uh, Bjork. Uh, yeah. Can't remember if it was a particular album, but um, yeah. I was in a band. Oh, right. We were, yeah, I wanted to be a rock star, actually. We, right. It's a miracle I went to university, actually. I wanted to just drop out of school and become a rock star. And, um, what did you play? But never. I was a singer. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. So, uh, and what was the band called? That's the important question. Uh, number and Number. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. Can you maybe unpack that a little? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> fine. It's quite nice. It's ambiguous because it's written down. It could be Number and Number. It could uh, be yeah, yeah, sure. Number and Number or Number and Number. Um, something very prosaic, soulless, mathematical, yeah. <laughs> something like that, yeah. What is the most unusual place you've ever found yourself doing philosophy? Um, yeah, I guess I, one conference was uh, on a, on a sailing ship in the Arctic. This was a this was right. a sort of conference at sea organised by the philosopher and billionaire investor Dmitry Volkov, um, who's part of the Moscow Centre for Consciousness Studies, and wanted to spend some money putting a dozen philosophers on a sailing ship for two weeks. Oh no, a week. Sorry, not a week. Talking about consciousness and free will. So it's a uh, Daniel Dennett and the Churchlands and David right. Chalmers and so yeah so there was m most people on this ship were very very strong materialists in fact most people were sort of people who almost or even actually denied the very reality of consciousness so me and David Chalmers me the panpsychist David Chalmers the dualist and uh, Martina Nida Rumelin who's very good substance dualist we were the sort of official on board opposition mm -hmm. <laughs> and we had some pretty fearsome debates 
But I managed to persuade Daniel Dennett he was wrong about something during that. Oh, really? So, about, about what? Um, something quite specific about whether dualism is consistent with conservation of energy. Right. And um, <laughs> I, I suggested, yeah, so Churchins have, this, have made this line before that dualism is ruled out by conservation of energy. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm not a dualist, but I pointed out, as others have pointed out, the dualists could just think the you know, dualists tend to believe in psychophysical laws that relate the mental and the physical. They could just think they respect conservation of energy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, we have multiple laws of nature that all together respect conservation of energy. Why couldn't you? Uh, and I said this during the Churchland's debate, and they, as one of the Moscow students said later, they turned on you like a pack of wolves. And they were all like, oh, so you believe in magic? And I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, this is a very, I'm not a dualist, I'm very, very specific. But anyway, uh, that night everyone had gone to an island. So we sort of kept stopping at islands and going right. off and exploring. And it was just me and Dennett on, on, on the deck, and he was carving a, wood, a walking stick. It's a very practical tip. And I just, <laughs> I just persisted on this point, you know, he said, I'm not a dualist, I'm not saying dualist, but, but this specific point of conservation. And in the end he said, maybe that's right. So yes. Job done. What do you like about being a philosopher? Oh, got everything really. So, <laughs> can't, so I can't believe I can get paid just to sit around thinking about consciousness and stuff. And I really love teaching. I, I used to think ideally I, I'd prefer to just do research, but I think I really liked it. Maybe, maybe I'd like to teach a little bit less, but uh, you know, I really like teaching, really like research. I suppose, you know, the. Um, Downside of academia in general is you've got to continually motivate yourself. You know, you don't have externally imposed deadlines. You just got to motivate yourself, and uh, you know, I think that I mean, continual exercise of willpower to uh, force yourself to write stuff and um, can be a bit a bit exhausting. I, th I think I'm quite lucky that I'm able to sort of able to do that. I get quite obsessed with routine. You know, plan out every hour of the day and. Um, but I think that is quite hard. But yeah, no, it's great. I like just, you know, I've always loved just sitting around thinking about stuff, wasting my time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Philip. Thank you very much. That's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Out of the Vat, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.